Carl and I were having a little fun just a moment ago because you all probably don't know this, but uh, I'm not 5'11 or 6 feet tall. And over sabbatical, I didn't grow, at least height-ways. I did eat good. And so in first service, he forgot to pull out my little step stool that's here, my cheater. Now, the last several years, that hasn't been a big deal to me because before I had surgery and I was uh, preaching sitting down, it wouldn't matter. Now I'm preaching standing. I feel like I'm mobile again. I can move and all of that. And so it's very important to me that I can see out over the pulpit. That's kind of a crucial, crucial thing. But I was also thinking, somebody mentioned after first service, because I talked about that and pulled it out and and did all that, and they said, well, Jeff, it's kind of, and they know I'm a baseball fan, so this is where this is going. And they go, well, it's like you're stepping up to the pulpit. And I went, well, that's good. And then it made me think getting up and preaching and stuff like that, and I go, if you step up to the plate in baseball and you hit three out of ten base hit, you're a 300 hitter and you're a Hall of Famer. That gives me such freedom. Seven of these sermons can stink. (laughs) All I have to do is three out of every ten weeks, and I'm in the Preacher's Hall of Fame, whatever that looks like. And then I thought about the passage of Scripture Al read, and this gives me much greater comfort than my statistics. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's our comfort. That's the promise of God. Let's pray. Father, you also give us the promise regarding your word that it will not return to you empty, that it will accomplish what you have set out for it to accomplish. So it will do its work, what you have purposed for it in our lives, whether that is to comfort us or to challenge us or to give us a new lesson or insight or to afflict us, to make us uncomfortable, whatever that might be, and however your spirit is choosing sovereignly to work this morning. Let us take heed to what was read in the call to worship. Today, if you hear his voice, and we hear your voice in your word, let us not harden our hearts as our forefathers did when they walked in the wilderness. So as we talk about this topic of life in the wilderness this morning, may we approach your word coming under it with teachable, humble hearts, open to what you are telling us, whether we like it or not. Help us to be teachable. In Jesus' name, amen. We've asked God to illumine our minds and our hearts. Now let's turn to God's word. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Let's take a look as we're continuing our series of studies in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be here through the fall, and then we'll break for Christmas and probably return again after the first of the year, but we're here in these opening verses of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is God's word. Well, let's remind ourselves, why did the gospel writers, you open your New Testament, you have the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. Why did they write down their accounts of the life of Jesus? Tim Keller, and I think he's drawing upon the work of New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, talks about how for 30 or so years, roughly, rounding off here, 30 or so years after the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there were no written accounts. The details, what Jesus taught, his actions, his deeds, his works, all of these things, the details of these things were spread orally, verbally. And so one of the reasons there weren't any written accounts was that it was very difficult to distort the teachings and the life of Jesus because of the reality of the presence of eyewitnesses. So as I shared last week, Mark is basing much of his gospel account on the eyewitness account of Peter. As Mark and Peter were in Rome, and Peter is sharing with Mark what's going on, Mark's writing it down, and you have the gospel according to Mark. And so, for example, just to give you one example of how this might work, you have 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is teaching on the resurrection of Jesus, how it happened, why it's important, its significance. He's teaching it to a local church. And this is maybe 25 years or so, 30 years, whatever, after Jesus' resurrection. And he's talking about, in the midst of his explanation, he lists the people who actually saw the risen Jesus. And at one point he says, oh yeah, there were 500 people who saw the risen Jesus. And he says, most of them are still alive. If you have questions about this, go talk to them. They'll tell you what's going on. In other words, when the fir- during the first two to three decades after Jesus' life, it was difficult for someone to just make something up. Tim Keller says, for example, you couldn't say, oh yeah, Jesus Christ... He was divine. He used to fly through the air from preaching engagement to preaching engagement. Somebody would say, no, he didn't. If somebody says, how did you know? I was there. I saw it. It didn't happen that way. And then what happened was that after this generation, the original apostles, the eyewitnesses, the 500 people, all of those, they started to die. They started to die off. And so now, as the eyewitnesses are dying off, there arose a danger. Anybody could basically say anything they wanted and make up anything they wanted about Jesus, and you could get a very distorted picture and lose touch with the real Jesus. And therefore, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers, began to pull together their eyewitness accounts that are trustworthy, that are verifiable, And they turn them into the lives of Jesus, the gospel accounts, the books that we have. And Tim Keller makes a very important point about this from a practical standpoint, about its relevance, why they're so important for us. He says, because without them, we would not have the real Jesus. So instead of a Jesus, we make up. He makes the point that you need to have the real Jesus, not a Jesus of your own creating. A Jesus we make up, because a Jesus we make up is not real. And a Jesus that we make up can't renew you, can't change you, can't transform you, can't guide you, can't help you, can't challenge you. 
You need a real Jesus, and that is what Mark gives to us. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 is the beginning of what they call the prologue. Verses 1 through 13 is the prologue, kind of the introduction to the whole gospel of Mark. And it begins with the words, the beginning of the gospel. So Mark is saying, here's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm laying out this announcement, this good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he says, as it is written to Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. These opening words, commentators tell us, function kind of as a lens through which the rest of the gospel, the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is to be understood. Mark roots his gospel by saying, as was written in the prophet Isaiah, he's rooting his gospel in the Old Testament and the story of Israel. And he's placing the setting in kind of Exodus language when he talks about the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is looking back to the Exodus as kind of the paradigm moment for salvation. And just like the Exodus meant deliverance, wilderness, presence of God into the promised land. It means the same thing for us. And just to prove there can be some good with social media, I was reading social media this week, and one particular scholar, I liked how he worded it, he says, the only way home is through the wilderness. The context of our Christian life, the whole of our Christian life, is the wilderness. The wilderness is not just a couple of down times we have in our Christian life. Oh, I'm struggling right now. I'm in the wilderness. No, Peter, in his first letters, calls us sojourners and exiles. Again, hearkening back to the Old Testament. And he's saying the whole of your Christian life is as a sojourner, journeying, traveling, and as an exile, not yet home. You're in the wilderness, heading towards the promised land. So the context of your Christian life, the context of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is life in the wilderness. So what does Mark teach us about life in the wilderness? Well, I'm still a Presbyterian pastor, so last week I was practicing. You got a two-point sermon, but guess what? We're up up to three points. I'm feeling closer to mid-season form this morning. So Mark tells us three things about life in the wilderness. He teaches us that life in the wilderness is communal, You don't tackle life in the wilderness by yourself. Life in the wilderness is dependent. Life in the wilderness strips us bare of our arrogant autonomy and independence. But life in the wilderness is also hopeful. Communal, dependent, and hopeful. Marcus clearly, when he begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then immediately he cites Isaiah. And actually what Mark does, he cites Isaiah, but he also brings together a couple of other Old Testament citations. He refers to Exodus and Malachi as well in doing this, but he's doing this for a reason. He is saying to this New Testament audience, and thus to us, your story is in the context of the story of Israel. Yours is not a new religion. Yours is not a new thing. Your story is placed right in the midst of a centuries-long history. Many of us, I think, you know, as Americans, we like to think, well, yeah, in generations past, we're such an old country, 200-some-odd years. We're barely toddlers. 
Friends, as Christians, you're rooted in the story of Israel that goes back centuries even before Christ. I don't know if you knew this, but in our bulletins, we actually have reflections, and we put them there so you might read them. That's a funny thing, isn't it? I come back with very high hopes from sabbatical. My hopes are so high, I'm even going to read the reflection to you this morning to make sure you get it. I must have thought it was very important. Tim Keller says, in making this audacious claim, Mark is rooting Jesus as deeply as possible in the historic ancient religion of Israel. Christianity, he implies, is not a completely new thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the biblical prophets' longings and visions, and he is the one who will come to rule and renew the entire universe. Listen to that. When Mark says, behold, I send my messenger, Al read from Isaiah 40, that messenger, the voice crying in the wilderness, Isaiah is saying, he's looking forward by saying the promise of the Exodus, the reality we had, it's going to come true again in the future. You know what Mark is saying? Mark is saying the future is now. The future begins now. The fulfillment of all of the biblical prophets, Isaiah, Malachi, their visions, their longings, is coming to fruition in the person of this one who will rule and renew the entire universe. We are rooted in a story. We are rooted in a people. We are rooted in a community. Everything God does, see, this goes against, this is very countercultural. Especially American culture, we are so individualistic. Everything is me, myself, and I. And then maybe I'll do it again. I'll just reply, I, me, and myself. I can say it in a different order, myself, me, and I. But we're so used to thinking just individual. Do you know how counter the Bible is to that? The whole idea, just to give you a couple of biblical examples, when God relates to his people by way of covenant, he's calling a people to himself. When Paul wrote to Titus about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he said that God was purifying a people to himself. God has rooted us in a covenant family. Do you know how important that is for life in the wilderness? Let me just try to make this practical and relevant for a second of how we need this in the wilderness, how you can't make it alone, and how we absolutely need each other. Life is especially difficult today, and life is incredibly busy. Anybody ever notice how busy life is? None of you all are busy, right? You have just calm, peaceful peaceful lives, nothing to do, right? Right? I mean, imagine being, and some of you can, okay, trying to raise a family today. I don't want to dare ask what time you get up in the morning, and then you're getting kids ready for school, you're fixing lunches, you're maybe taking care of your body, doing a little exercise, then you're working all day, then you're getting home from school, you're picking up the kids, then it's time for soccer practice, baseball practice, football practice, softball practice, band practice. Did I miss anything? Then we do it all over again. 
Then we do all of that. We go to work. We go shopping. We try to eat healthy. We exercise. We go, we go, we go, we go. Let me ask you a question in all of this. When do you have time to take care of your soul? And then you ask, why are you exhausted? Why are you tired? Why are you weary? Now, and I'm going to touch upon this under the next point. We have to be busy. There's a certain element, okay? So I'm not, if any of you thinking I'm condemning being busy, uh, excuse me, have you looked at my life lately? I keep a little busy too. But the point of this is this is part of life in the wilderness, and we need each other. Life in the wilderness is not just about us as individuals. Part of the point in Mark rooting this, notice this when you read your Bible, when he says, as it is said in the Old Testament, as Isaiah said, take courage and take encouragement. He is saying you are rooted in a family. Not only you matter as an individual, but you're part of something that's historic. You're part of something that's huge. You're part of something that matters more than anything else. There is no more important institution in the universe than the church of Jesus Christ. We're more important than nations. We're more important than presidents. We're more important than elections. We're more important than kings. The most important community is the church of Jesus Christ. That's the only community that was promised the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And that's what you are a part of. I don't know about you, but that gives me a little bit of courage, and I'm a fearful guy. So that's the first point. Life in the wilderness. Rejoice in this. Because the second point gets a little harder. Life in the wilderness is communal. The second point is life in the wilderness is dependent. And I need to ask you a question. What does it mean when he says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, or John appeared baptizing in the wilderness? And then he came and he, you know, the first paleo diet. Hi, what are you having? Locusts, please? Well done. I don't think I'll be ordering them at lunch, by the way. What is the point of life in the wilderness? We talked a little bit about this at session the other night. We were having our elders meeting, and I, try, I'm, I want to have more community involvement in terms of sermon preparation. So I was asking the guys, what do you think of when you think of the wilderness? And we were kind of ba- bantering back and forth a little bit and go, going, well, it's probably not the forest where you kind of, it's definitely not, you know, I wish it were. Life in the forest where you're walking and there's the brook and there's Bambi. Bambi's lopping up the water by the brook. And you're out there and it's kind of scenic and you sit back in your little boat and you cast your fishing line. You take a nap. Isn't it nice? The wilderness. I even double-checked my Greek on this one because I wanted to make sure I was right, and unfortunately I am. The Greek word for this, the word eremo, actually means desert. A desolate, lonely, isolated, empty place. And Tim Keller reminds us, he says, in the Bible, in general, it is the will, in the wilderness that you meet God. Where was Moses when he met God in the burning bush? It was in the wilderness. Where was Jacob when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord face to face? It was in the wilderness. And where did Israel, the story that Mark is rooting this in, 
Where did Israel meet God? Pulled them out of Egypt at Sinai to prepare them for life in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where you can't stay alive without the intervention of God, which makes us totally dependent, which is why we hate and avoid the wilderness. Earlier I said there's a lot of our busyness we can't avoid, and that's true. I stand by that statement. But let's have the courage to ask ourselves the question, because there is some of our busyness we probably can avoid. And let's have the courage to ask ourselves the question, do I have the amount of busyness that I have? The amount of, yes, it makes me exhausted, do I do that to avoid the necessity of dependence and life in the wilderness? See, what happens with life in the wilderness is you're forced to look inward. You're forced to look inward and go, what am I trusting in? What are the foundations? Tim Keller says, what is the shaft, the drive shaft of my heart? And he quotes C.S. Lewis, explaining what the wilderness experience is in which we meet God. Lewis writes, most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, that's what I'm saying a lot of us do with our busyness, we avoid looking into our own hearts. He says, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. And so here is what it really means to find and meet Jesus, the king. And in the wilderness is where this usually happens. Something happens in your life that makes you look at the very foundations of your life and you can come and realize, I'm going to die without God. It's not only my career or my family or my friends my looks, my achievements, my money, it's none of these things. And in a wilderness, we're forced to look inward and go, what is the motivational drive of my heart? I am totally dependent on God. In the wilderness, nothing sustains you but God. I have no bread other than the bread of life. I have no water other than the rivers of living water. It is only in the wilderness that you can experience that and realize that you are dependent on the king. So the wilderness is what teaches you you belong to a family. It's communal. The wilderness is what teaches you independence and autonomy is a myth. It strips you of our arrogant independence and makes you realize we are dependent creatures. But it's precisely at that point that it becomes hopeful. C.S. Lewis talked about how it's in the wilderness where we can look in and find what we're always longing for, what the world offers and can't give, but what we're longing and thirsting for. When I was out in Oklahoma City, I went to City Presbyterian Church, and one of their pastors, a man by the name of Bobby Griffith, good friend of mine, he put it this way. He says, we are all walking through life asking, am I okay? He says, we all want to be free to be ourselves. That's oftentimes. See, we we all thirst. We all have that longing to know we're okay. We're all right. 
We're validated. We're approved of. We're vindicated. We matter as people. We all long to be free to be ourselves. Here's where sin gets in the way. We're not convinced fully. We believe, yet help me overcome my unbelief. We don't really fully trust and count on the fact that we're okay with God. So we've got to fill up our lives with all sorts of things. Then we wonder why we're so exhausted. But this is where we have to come back to the wilderness and find hope. See, verse 3 of our text says, prepare the way of the Lord. And that word way is literally the word road. Prepare the road for the Lord. Mark is saying the beginning of the gospel, he introduces us to the forerunner, the one bearing witness to Jesus, who is John the Baptist. And John is preparing a path, a road, a journey for Jesus. And just like our journey is an Exodus journey, Jesus had to go through the Exodus journey first. And it's real interesting, if you look at how Mark ends this passage, he says, after me comes, this is again quoting John the Baptist, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And then here's the promise of John's prophecy. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism marks somebody out, claims them. It's an identity marker. John is saying, I've given this identity marker with water, but wait a second, one's coming. And by the way, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. But he's coming, he's going to mark you out with something. He's going to mark you and claim you with the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? Remember, we're looking now at Jesus' road less traveled and how this gives us hope. And we have to start to make some connections. In John chapter 7, in verse 2, John gives us the context. And the context was the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the Feast of the Tabernacles, as Leviticus reminds us, the book of Leviticus reminds us, the Feast of the Tabernacles was one of the festivals, one of the yearly annual feasts Israel was called to celebrate to commemorate their time in the wilderness. It was given for the purpose of helping them remember their time in the wilderness. When you get to the end of the gospel, uh, end of John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus stands up and says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering Israel's wandering in the wilderness, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Where do you thirst? You thirst in the wilderness. What do you thirst for? We long to know we're okay. We long to know the wilderness is a dangerous place. You're left with nothing. Am I going to be okay? That's what the wilderness is all about. You're thirsty. Jesus is saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me in the midst of this dangerous place Rivers of living water will flow from within you. And John adds the narrative point, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. When were they to receive it? After Jesus died, 
rose again, was ascended, and poured out the spirit of the ascended Lord, the spirit of the ruling, reigning, exalted, glorified Lord on people. We're late because Jesus was not yet glorified. We're filled with living water through Jesus' thirsting. John is saying, John is the forerunner pointing. See, this passage in Mark is not about John. We'd love to make it about John the Baptist. It's not about John at all. It's about Jesus. It's about John bearing witness to Jesus. It's about John pointing to Jesus. And John is saying Jesus is about to go down a road less traveled. He's about to go down a road that only he can travel. He's about to take his exodus journey so that your exodus, your deliverance, you're brought into the wilderness, and your guarantee of the promised land is through Jesus, the coming one. In John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus was on the cross, and he said these words, I thirst. At that moment, Jesus was going through the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate aloneness, emptiness. You ever wonder why the gospel writers tell us that at the moment of Jesus' death, darkness came over the face of the earth for that three-hour time period? In a sense, Jesus was going through a time of uncreation, so to speak, a time of utter chaos, a time of utter emptiness, a time of utter aloneness, forsakenness. He was going through the ultimate wilderness so that you and I, no matter what wildernesses we go through, and we go through painful ones, we go through difficult ones. Life is difficult and dangerous, but we'll never have to go through the ultimate wilderness the wilderness of hell itself, because Jesus went there first for us. Tim Keller puts it so well when he says, Jesus Christ went into the ultimate wilderness, a howling wilderness. And he writes, what was in that wilderness? Thorns down into the head, thirst, forsakenness, aloneness. Jesus Christ went into the ultimate wilderness and lost God so that when you and I go into our little wildernesses, we can find God. Jesus took the punishment we deserve so that we can have, by grace, a relationship with God. Friends, that makes the wilderness not only hopeful, but our ultimate hope. How do you respond? Do you respond like John? I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. And yet I receive, I believe in him. And I recognize the road he followed, the road he came, was to stoop down and find me. Father, we do pray that Jesus would be real to us that we would respond, that we would recognize, as we said in the call to worship today, if you hear his voice. May this not be a day where any of us stays neutral. May this be a day where we recognize that if we don't respond, we are responding. We're saying no to Jesus. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would sense, that we would hear your voice. We would hear you calling. We would hear you knocking. We would hear you pursuing us, and we would respond. Really, the only logical, the only rational way that we can, and that's utter, utter surrender and worship of you. That we would give what doesn't belong to us in the first place. We say our lives, they're not ours, they're yours. That we would give the life you've given to us, and we would give it to you in wholehearted obedience, which is the only thing that brings us into an exodus, brings us liberation and freedom. The only way home is through a wilderness. Bring us home, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.